Thunder Media. This week on Inside Supercars, we look at 50 years of robust discussions with Mark Fogarty. Well, I wasn't meaning to be rude, but that doesn't mean you can get you can't get straight to the point, and that's what I used to do. Fogues talks about where he started. A long story. I mean, literally, from when I started as a 15-year-old, have a go with Auto Action magazine, all through a very interesting and varied career throughout different sports, underpinned all through it, I guess you'd say by motorsport. And if supercars is too big to lose. Of course, yes, it is the only game in town in terms of a serious national sport competition. Mark Fogarty, today on Inside Supercars. I hope you'll stay with us. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. We're talking today with one of the men who has seen Supercars come, supercars go, and the sport grow from something that was uh, really interesting to follow and bloom into something that uh, has become a very large industry. Mike Fogarty, welcome back to Inside Supercars. Thank you, Tony. And how are you gentlemen today? All fit and well and, uh, well, I suppose uh, enjoying times where there's not so much written about COVID in the newspapers that we uh, are covering other events in the world. It does seem to be moving on, although... There are other more pressing issues, I think, affecting the world at the moment. Indeed. But we move on, and as you say, supercars has become a very big business, and uh, it's certainly providing employment for a lot of people. Before we talk on subjects current and new, maybe we could just go back, because there's an awful lot of people who listen to this show that don't know of your history, that don't know as to where it started for you. Melbourne born and bred, um, and... You know, you started in the road. It wasn't motorsport only. You were having to cover all sports. So tell us about your beginnings as a journalist. Well, it's a long story, and I mean literally. (laughs) It's my 50th anniversary this year of uh, being a journalist from when I started as a 15-year-old have a go with Auto Action magazine or through a very interesting and varied career throughout different sports, um, underpinned all through it, I guess you'd say by motorsport. Um, but, you know, gosh, I've done a lot of things. What haven't I done? You know, radio news presenter and sportscaster. I've done some TV work, worked in newspapers, worked um, in magazines, particularly in all sorts of things. and. Even now, I'm uh, operating in the digital world. So uh, it's been uh, 50 very interesting years, I have to tell you. One of the things that I remember you first coming across you, and I obviously knew of your byline well before that, 
Um, I, I have five generations of journalists on both sides of my family. So bylines is something at age, you know, eight or ten I was reading. So I know that world. But I came across it with my very first Surface Paradise IndyCar. Um, it was the post-race event. I'd already heard you in the press conference on the Saturday of uh, uh, Nigel Mansell taking pole. But then when the post-race press conference came around and... <laughs> And I remember you asked, I think, the very first question of Nigel Mansell, and, and he exclaimed and thought, oh, I thought I'd got away from you. Yes. <laughs> Having left Formula One and thought he was in the safe world. <laughs> yes, indeed. That was amusing. Yes, we'd had quite a few run-ins back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s in Formula One, and then for him to switch in 93 to IndyCar, and then um, when he comes out, and I think back then it was the opening round of the IndyCar series, um, and he found me there. It was uh, it was a bit of a surprise for him, but that yeah, was good fun. We were we were getting along fine by then. Yeah, well and truly, and, and he certainly paid respect to you and answered your question. And of course, most infamously, you had had a uh, far more um, robust uh, conversations with Ron Dennis, of course. I think it's fair to say that I had robust conversations with pretty much everyone, well, not only in Formula One, but in any series or sport in which I've participated. It was sort of my signature for a long time was, um, well, just asking very straightforward, very direct questions. You know, there was no need to muck around, just get stuck in. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't think, well, I wasn't meaning to be rude, but that doesn't mean you can get you can't get straight to the point, and that's what I used to do, and uh, to some extent still do it now, I suppose. Having lived through many different generations, the way in which media has transpired and it's, it's you know different parts have grown up. When we look now, you know, uh, obviously there's been a, a massive change in recent years with the the unfortunate demise of many motorsport magazines in this country and in fact around the world motorsport publishing has moved on and obviously digital world keeps up with the sport quite well but do you think analog media as such is dead do you think that that world has gone forever i don't think it's gone forever but print media and particularly multiple titles in specialist areas um, those that are left, which are very few, are hanging on by their fingertips. And I've kind of changed my mind in recent years. I thought, you know, let's say in motorsport, at least one, you know, decent regular motorsport uh, magazine or print publication could hang on. Um, now I'm beginning to wonder, you know, I hope that the one and, and the, yeah, the very few others that exist will continue, but. Print media will will stay around, um, well, certainly in my lifetime, um, but it'll change. And in magazines, I think you can see the change towards them going to be more pres prestige title. Um, and we've just lost Motor Magazine, which had been around since the 1950s. And in that general motoring sphere, which used to be uh, very lucrative and used to sell pretty big numbers, um, the only survivor is Wheels magazine, which I guess, you know, for probably 60 or so years has been, you know, the authority, the voice of the in the motor industry. Um, well, it's last man standing. 
Now, there are any number of motoring websites around. You know, you, you can't move without tripping up over them. And um, certainly in, in the motor racing world in Australia, um, a website, Speed Cafe, as you well know, it has become the go-to place um, for daily motor racing news. Now, you might debate whether that's the place to go for in-depth reporting and, you know, any sort of, well, colourful feature stories and in-depth analysis. Um, you won't find much of that. And then you go into the other area that's booming now, which is this platform, a podcast. And um, as you know, I'm now, I'm doing one now, a weekly motorsport news podcast called Parked Up Plus, um, which is, well, you might think it's new for me. It's actually, in a way, I've gone a full circle because you could describe it as it's a motorsport, you know, radio newscast or sportscast uh, just on a, a different platform. But that's the way I'm approaching it. I'm just I revived skills that I probably hadn't used for 30 years um, in presenting this short, sharp uh, motor racing news bulletin, if you like, and it's full of what, well, we used to call actuality back in my radio days. Now I just suppose you'd call them audio grabs, but, you know, we try to get the main players um, or some main players involved in each episode. So rather than me just droning on, we get to hear from the, news-making voices of the week. So, um, But that's in a podcast, and, of course, podcasts aren't new, but they've certainly come into their own recently. And, you know, there's a certain irony to the fact that I'm using, as I said, three-decade skills that I haven't used in terms of news presenting, skills that I haven't used for three decades um, in this new digital medium. It's rather like I I remember reading a wonderful story about Mr. Sony, the man who uh, developed the Sony Corporation. And he used the phrase, and I think he was one of the first, acknowledged as one of the first to use it, was time shifting. That being taking a moment of time, whether a photograph, a video, an audio, and using it at the time when you want, not when others are wanting to. Um, and I'm sure that it's something that you're well used to. It's uh, it's this thing where era where people are wanting to have it at their beck and call, not at the beck and call of the broadcaster, so to speak. It's been coming for a long time, hasn't it? You know, if we go back to, you know, video recorders back in the, well, I suppose they became in general use in the mid-70s at least, and back then there were two video formats, of course, Sony Beta and um, Philips VHS, and VHS eventually won out. But that's when people started, as you say, time-shifting and watching TV shows and movies at their leisure, and that's built up to the point now where, um, well, the old idea of, uh, what do they call it, appointment TV, you know, linear TV that's scheduled just to a life degree, certainly among very young people, doesn't work. You know, people want to listen to or watch things when they want to, not when somebody else has dictated to them when it's on. Indeed. Speaking of the moment of time now, um, that podcast is one of the uh, efforts you're involved in. You're also still writing, I, I would believe. Not a lot at the moment, to be fair. Doesn't mean I won't go back to it, but no, but simply not a lot at the moment. I did a couple of big features for Wheels magazine last year, 
um, one of which won an award. Um, so a very um, in-depth and long uh, interview profiles with Roland Dane and also Michael Massey in Wheels magazine. And um, I was particularly proud of both of those. They, they were very interesting and very satisfying to do. So I hope to get back to some more of that because, you know, these were like eight to ten page feature stories in a, uh, you know, a prestigious and very reputable magazine. And um, you could imagine it's very easy to get satisfaction out of um, being allowed so much space and latitude to tell a story properly, just not in ten paragraphs. I did read them and I did enjoy them and certainly gave me a better insight into both those men. Let's just have a look at the uh, broader picture of the supercar season. You're not doing all the rounds, are you? Uh, no, I am not. And I'm quite happy about that, I have to say. <laughs> no, like, mate, after 50 years, you can imagine, you know, how many race meetings, how many sports events, how many events I've done. You know, I know it sounds very boring, but you know, for me, not going anywhere, not doing anything is actually the greatest luxury that I can imagine. But, um, yeah, I'll go to a handful. Um, I was up at Winton and I'll probably maybe go over to the Bend. I'll certainly be at Sandown and then, of course, the Bathurst 1000. But, yeah, that's that's probably enough for me. Thank you. Okay, similar to myself. Um, I, I would uh, have to say that, it, it's an interesting season. Um, we've, uh, you know, seen a good number of winners, seen other people come and go, uh, yo-yo effect uh, for a few teams from one round to the next. Um, you're finding it interesting in that regard, the final year of the current car? It has its moments, yes, but you could say that about every supercar season. I don't know, possibly over the last decade, if, if not more. There, even you know, even in dominant years, there's there's always something going on, and um, supercars has always seemed somehow to defy gravity. It, you know, it remains generally prosperous, and and the racing is good enough and close enough, often enough that keeps interest. And it's been doing this now. What well. The B8 formula, as such, goes back to what '93, really, if you want to stretch it that far back. But you know, the basic formula has been around for a long time, and you know, with some tweaks along the way, it served us very well. And we're heading into a, you know another generation, which is different but much the same. And so you would expect it will probably just you know roll along. As I said, it, it defies gravity, but it, it is amazing. But now this season has been quite interesting. It's 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 another it's another uh, Shane Van Gisbergen show, really. You know, if he doesn't win the series, I'll go he. Um, uh, but you know, Brock Feeney is impressing. You know, as a as a rookie, um, you know, he's certainly you know solid up there in the middle of the top ten. Um, Grove Racing have shown potential. The other end of the grid, even the old team Sydney, Premier Racing, really, from what they came from, have been um, quite impressive. And then you, But then you go up to DJR. Um, they're not impressive. You know, they're clearly the number two team, but they're just not getting the results that a team of that ilk should be. And Anton Di Pasquale is not dominant 
you know, in what should be his team. He was the replacement for Scott McLaughlin. And yet, um, well, he hasn't won a race this year, yet Will Davison, who you would imagine would be the number two, well, he's far from a number two. Um, he's keeping the pressure on ADP. So, I mean, that's good within the team, but you would expect DJR um, well, to be contending for wins much more often, but they just don't seem to have the race pace. They've, they've got qualifying pace, you know, they've, they've had polls, that's not their issue. Um, so, but anyway, and, you know, Tickford, well, certainly Cam Waters is starting to come into his own again. And if they can maintain that momentum, he may become a, um, well, he is a title contender, but, you know, he's, he's one of the few that can push Shane Van Gisbergen. Um, doesn't get intimidated by Shane. So that's, to me, where the potential interest lies is if, you know, Cam can mount a serious challenge. And, of course, you know, the other guy who could uh, give Shane Van Gisbergen fits is Chaz Mostert. Uh, but he needs more consistent competitiveness from the WAU Commodore, and that's just not there. You know, he pokes his head up occasionally. Um, if he were up there more often, you know, if you suddenly had Van Gisbergen, Waters and Mostert, well, they're, they're the three best drivers in the series easily, you know, with Anton De Pasquale should probably be up there as well. Um so if everyone were as competitive as they could be, um, to use a very old-fashioned phrase, it would be on for young and old. We have spoken to a, a few different people, journos and, and fans in the last couple of weeks and posed them the question, should, should Shane stay in Europe? Because what a championship we'd have with... I think the next six cars within a hundred points of each other. Mm, that's an argument. Yes, he certainly has the talent to make it anywhere in the world. That's clearly obvious. I don't think he wants to. He likes to go and race overseas big events like he's just done at Le Mans in Le Mans 24 hours. Um, he likes racing in the States and all that. But I think he likes, he enjoys living out here and he enjoys driving supercars. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. We'd miss him. He, you know, he's a, uh, I was going to say he's a good character. That's probably too strong a word, but certainly as a driver, he's a great character. Um, you know, he has flair and his aggression and all of that. He's, and he's, I, I actually think he's getting better with the media. You know, some of his, you know, little, and they're very little to be, to be fair, but, you know, little funnies. You know, after he's won a pole or won a race or something, um, I think he's growing into it a bit. Interesting, Radio Le Mans made a, a number of comments throughout the weekend that he was uh, down the rabbit hole as soon as he was out of the car and uh, wasn't making himself too available for an interview throughout the uh, course of the 24-hour race. So uh, that was an interesting observation uh, from the guys over there in France is supercars folks too big now to fail is there is it just a behemoth that has, has to keep rolling and if if the new owners have to prop it up it's just got to keep they've just got to keep doing it because there's no other game in town that can even remotely step up to the plate 
oh, on that basis, of course, yes, it is the only game in town in terms of a serious national sports competition. Uh, no, if supercars went away, I, I couldn't really hand on heart. I couldn't see which category, you know, could could replace it. I, I you know, best will in the world, not TCR. Maybe GT3, I guess if all the supercar stars suddenly flooded into GT3 with those exotic marks, yeah, yeah, maybe. Oh, hang on. That's called the DTM, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but even so, would it be the same? I'm, I just, no, that's a, you, you've raised a good point, but no, supercars, as we know, as things stand at the moment, it is the only game in town in terms of a serious national competition um, with any mainstream appeal, um, and it's got momentum. Speaking of momentum, uh, Mark, um, the one thing that we've been looking forward to for a number of years now, and 23 it's going to happen, a new car. Um, it's uh, from where we were at our peak with five different makes at one stage, um, we're now going back to the same old model, which we've been in now for a couple of years of a GM product and a Ford product. Um, the Camaro has been uh, homologated, built, and the Mustang is now in its uh, new version, although the uh, final body shape is yet to arrive because that's uh, something new for 23 from America. Um, what do you see uh, on the horizon? I mean, there can't be much variation on a theme because it is still two makes of cars and... Uh, um, now there'll be both two doors. Well, I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did because we're stuck with Gen 3, and I use the term stuck advisedly, but my understanding is it's a, it's designed as a 10-year platform. 10 years is a long time, any time, but certainly the way things are rapidly developing and changing in the world at the moment, um, it's a very long time. I would have thought five years um, would be appropriate. But at the moment, you know, they've thrown all their eggs into the coupe, the two-door coupe basket, and that's while the Mustang and the Camaro are around, that's fine. We know the Mustang will be around for several more years, probably at least, in the, as a conventional two-door fastback V8-powered uh, machine. Camaro, not so much. You know, pretty much it's the existing model and and and, and the Camaro as a traditional muscle car um, is probably dead from next year, um, if not next year, 2024, certainly. So, you know, relevancy, which is a very debatable term in motor racing terms, anyway, you know, it becomes a question. Um, but we've, you know, as I said, we've thrown our lot in with, you know, two muscle cars, and they'll be fast, they'll be noisy, and, you know, as long as they're around, I guess, you know, there should be some interest. Um, what does, disturbs me about Gen 3, or many things disturb me about Gen 3 and its development, but what particularly disturbs me is that they're not actively pursuing the, uh, uh, the, hy the hybrid element of the package it's designed to have a battery pack and an electric motor, you know, to provide hybrid assistance to the, the V8 motor. Um, but while that provision has been made, 
um, there'd be no active move to introduce that. Now, they wouldn't have introduced it straight away, but I would have thought they'd have a plan to aim for it by, uh, okay, pick a number, any number, 2025 or at least 26. You know, other series, the BTCC in the United Kingdom has already gone hybrid. Uh, World Rally Championship has gone hybrid. You know, Formula One's been hybrid for ages. And even NASCAR, you know, of all the Luddite motor racing series, it's on the verge of going hybrid. So um, we need to go to that next step. And that will also possibly attract new manufacturers because as as we look at it, we are not going to get any new manufacturers involved in supercars with the current format, you know, apart from some, you know, some left field, you know, strange thing like Volvo getting involved. But as it stands, um, we're, we're stuck with uh, the blue versus, well, not red anymore, blue versus gold. And, yeah, that might be good enough for a while, but is it good enough for the next 10 years? Uh, I would doubt it. I have in my hands, folks, a SWOT analysis of supercars leading into the current generation of car. And one of the weaknesses pointed out in this document said, disjointed business interests, SEL slash Tiger, critical of either party. Understanding of the culture, mentality of separate business units and sometimes lacking. We've got new owners now, folks. Is 2023 when they're going to launch all the new whiz-bang ideas? Because 2022, it hasn't happened so far. They are treading warily, you have to say that. I don't think we'll see anything radical this year. There's no sign of it. Um, maybe, you know, will there be any big... Will there be a revolution in the way the, the sport is promoted next year? I'd hope so, but... I mean, at least the sport is now under one roof, if you like. You know, ownership is centralised with with race, uh, this entity. So at least decisions can be made um, without having to go back, well, without being dictated, excuse me, without being dictated by the team, who even when they had a, a, major, a, minority, a minority interest, they still um, had a hell of a lot of, influence and it was still until this new ownership came in it was still very much the tail wagging the dog so there is an opportunity for the new owners to at least take control and be able to make the, the big decisions because um well, because they own it <laughs> simple as that mark as somebody who's covered international motorsport far more than i ever have or had thought to um it's always interested me the way in which toyota went into NASCAR and, um, and, you know, ended up owning the series, had a, a massive impact in it and, uh, you know, got to be in a winning position. Now, obviously, in Australia, they had followed the Camry Corolla, you know, sort of that was their mould of the cars that they were aiming middle Australia and obviously doing it very successfully, um, being the number one brand for 10 years plus, um, number one selling car, Camry, Hilux, whatever. Has it surprised you that they didn't get involved at some stage here? Not at all. For the longest time, they had senior management who just weren't interested in racing and, in fact, 
we're very anti-racing. And, you know, even the new, new generation of leadership is, is not convinced. And I think the simple answer, Tony, is that Toyota in Australia don't need to go motor racing. They sell every car they can import, have done now for the well, best part of 20 years. I think the Camry's been the top seller in its class um, here for 17 years or something or more, something ridiculous. Um, and so Toyota hasn't needed to have a sporty image. They've dabbled over the years and done bits and pieces, but they've stuck to their knitting, basically, which is solid, reliable transportation. And when they have wanted to add a little bit of excitement, you know, they've gone rallying, which they still do to a limited extent. And they do the uh, the GR86 um, Toyota, you know, one-make series. And that seems to satisfy them. But any pitch that's ever come from supercars or even teams of the ilk of Triple Eight to get a Toyota involved is basically all fallen on deaf ears. I think the closest they came to it, my memory suggests, around... 2004, 2005, there was some genuine interest um, with a group of executives at Toyota Australia back then, and they were pushing quite hard, but um, no, didn't get it over the line, and that's it. It's a, you know, it's a different market here in, in the United States, um, and it's a different scale. Um, they're fighting a different battle, and getting into NASCAR and other forms of motorsport, uh, it seemed to make sense to add a little pizzazz to the brand. It's a stark contrast with New Zealand with their uh, Toyota Race Series, which is uh, phenomenally successful as a, a quarter of the grid in Formula One now, having been through that New Zealand small track, um, but a lot of track time for those young drivers every year. Um, quite extraordinary, uh, the success of that series. Yes, the TRS Series as you say, over in New Zealand, has been very successful. It's been the, the summer training ground for, as you say, um, several now Formula One stars or, or recent ones. And, it, well, it continues the proud tradition of summer racing here in January and February in New Zealand that goes back to the days of the Tasman Championship, doesn't it? Mark, thanks for joining us again on Inside Supercars. Look forward to catching up on a track later this year. Uh, and uh, I imagine that you might be looking back as Craig and I will looking at the blokes in Darwin going, oh, they're suffering in the heat, aren't they? I wouldn't have minded being there. I do like the warm weather up there, but um, stupid money to get up to Darwin at the moment, um, like many places. So, yeah, I can do without it. Yep. Tony Craig, good to talk to you guys. We'll catch you around the trap. Thanks for joining us. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.